Hey, y'all, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. So one of the things we love about doing this show is that we get to hear from you, the listeners, with their questions about what in the world is happening in this crazy, crazy election. Today, we're going to do something new with those questions. With barely two months until Election Day, we're trying out something called Monday Mail Episodes, M-A-I-L. So you can ask us about the issues, what we see out on the campaign trail, or anything else. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Let's get to it. In full disclosure, we are, if not taking the weekend off, then at least opening up all this mail before Labor Day. So if something crazy just happened, don't worry. We'll be back in your podcast feed very soon to talk about that stuff. All right? All right. Question one. Let's just get right to it. You ready, guys? I'm ready. Yes. You didn't sound too excited. Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm (laughs) I am so ready. So ready. Okay. Question one comes from Derek. Hey, Derek. Uh, Derek didn't tell us where he's from. Hey, anyway. Hey, anyway. Wherever you are, thank you for listening and for writing to us. Also, i got to give a shout out to Eric from Chicago who asked a similar question. Okay. Derek asked, quote, with the polls showing Clinton likely to win in November, is there a point at which the Senate Republicans will rethink their strategy of not holding Supreme Court nomination hearings before the next president comes on? When would it be too late for them to reconsider? Soup. Uh, no, they are not going to consider the nomination of Merrick Garland before the election. There's uh, no way? No way. Senate not before. Ma- yeah. Why? Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said as recently as last week that huh. reiterating his position that the next president will nominate the Supreme Court justice. Uh, there has been a theory that mm-hmm. if Republicans believe, Senate Republicans believe they were going to lose the election, that they would take up Merrick Garland preemptively in in case that President Hillary Clinton would nominate someone. she could go even someone, farther left. Exactly. That if she would nominate someone much more liberal and that Merrick Garland is a mainstream centrist and a pretty safe bet and has been praised by the likes of uh, Utah Republican Senator mm-hmm. Orrin Hatch and, and could easily get through. That is unlikely to happen for a couple of reasons. One, uh, Senate Republicans do not want to back down from their original position that it was too close to an election and that this should be the next president's decision. If you walk away from that, you kind of are acknowledging that it was an unprincipled stance to begin with. (laughs) 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 That's not likely going to happen. Two, we do not know this for sure, but every indication is if Hillary Clinton wins, that she is more likely than not to renominate Merrick Garland. And that if they believe that's going to happen and if they lose the White House, Senate Republicans aren't going to be in the mood after the election to say, hey, let's take this up in the lame duck. They're just going to let Democrats do it in the next Congress. On the other hand, if they did become convinced that there was the real prospect of a person, let's say a version of Ruth Bader Ginsburg Mm -hmm. or Sonia Sotomayor, who was 20 years younger than Merrick Garland, so that they're looking at a real roadblock on the court for that period of time, they could do it in the lame duck. They could have hearings on a Tuesday. They could have hearings on a Wednesday. On Thursday, they could have a Judiciary Committee vote. Um, We're talking sometime now in November, early in December. And uh, then have a vote the next week on the floor of the Senate after a brief debate and after suppressing probably a filibuster from Ted Cruz. And at that point, you have got Merrick Garland for the rest of his natural life. That would probably be a preferable scenario to some fearsome 45-year-old liberal who would be even less acceptable to the Republicans. But how do we know that Hillary Clinton, if she wins, will pick an arch liberal. What if she comes in and says, you know what, I need to try to unite the country and these parties. I don't want to make waves with this pick. That would be the rationale for another reappointment of Merrick Garland. Gotcha. In addition, of course, to his own 
Or she could pick another kind of moderate. Well, Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid told reporters a couple weeks ago over the August recess that he is inclined to believe that Hillary Clinton will renominate gotcha. Merrick Garland. And reporters followed up and said, hey, have you had a conversation with her? <laughs> you know, yeah. w- what makes you say this? And he just said something sort of obliquely like, I think I have it on a good authority. Cool. That was a thorough answer. Y'all are bringing it. Hey. You do cover Congress. (laughs) (laughs) I should know the answer. Okay. Question two is a recorded question from Lisa in California. Shout out to Lisa, who also tweets us a lot. Hi, Lisa. Hi, NPR Politics. My name is Lisa, and I'm from the Los Angeles area. I had never really heard of a campaign CEO until Donald Trump announced his this year. What's the difference between a campaign CEO and a campaign manager? Thank you, guys, and I really love your podcast. Oh, thank you for listening. Thanks, Lisa. Great question, Lisa. I don't know. What is the answer to that question? Well, first of all, the difference between this campaign CEO and this campaign campaign manager is the difference between Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway because Mm. those are their titles. Uh, This is an unusual campaign. This is a campaign that uh, takes a lot of its titles for people from the business world as opposed to the political world. Yes. And so I think we have to assume that CEO is a higher title as chairman of the board is a higher title yet than CEO. And so there are people who are the co-chairs of the committee who probably don't really matter that much to the campaign. Then there is the CEO who is the chief executive officer. And that person is theoretically above the campaign manager. But Kellyanne Conway has made it very clear in public that she reports directly to Donald Trump, which means she does not report to the CEO. So then is she more of the COO? Operating officer? Yeah. Possibly, except that she's day to day with him on the trail, right? Yes, and it also seems that she is far, far more visible. Yeah. In terms of being the spokesperson. I haven't seen him on TV. Yeah, he has not done the media tour where Kellyanne Conway has been everywhere. And she's good at it. Yeah, and she's been the face of the campaign. So I think that's one of the distinctions between CEO and campaign manager. I have not, I'd look this up a little bit because I was thinking, do have other campaigns do this? And I couldn't find a modern presidential campaign that used the CEO. There's like the campaign chair. And there's a campaign manager yeah. usually, right? But campaigns are also creations of their own design. So yeah. you could They're their own startup. You could call people whatever you want. You know? Okay. Lisa, thank you. Appreciate it. Next question, question three, moving down the line, comes from Jenny from Louisiana. She also had a question about campaign surrogates. She writes, quote, My husband and I watch a lot of cable news. How does Sorry to hear that, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> How does one become a surrogate for a candidate and specifically Trump? How do they get their talking points and what are their qualifications besides being followers of Trump? Sue? In a traditional sense, a campaign surrogate is someone that the campaign itself identifies as someone that they want speaking on their behalf, usually on a slice of policy issues, a campaign surrogate on immigration or the economy or defense. And those people are often given uh, the official campaign line, the talking points that they want to use in their message. And these surrogates do not only cable TV news, but they'll do panels, they'll speak in other capacities for the campaign. And they have tacit support from the campaign to do those things. There's an implicit difference here between a surrogate and a representative, and this is the way I would see it, that the surrogate is just as Sue has described, and that person is usually someone of some heft or importance on their own hook. So Mm -hmm. Chris Christie, Rudy Giuliani, somebody like that gets used. A representative might be anybody that the campaign has hired, and so we see the Katrina Pearsons of the world. We see, well, it used to be Kellyanne Conway. Now she's really been promoted within the campaign structure, and she's the campaign manager. But some 
somebody who's a campaign representative is a little more like a direct salesperson. So my question, in the year of Trump, we have interesting figures like Corey Lewandowski, who is still on the Trump payroll, no longer working for Trump, but also is paid by CNN. What's that about? That is troubling, I think, to a lot of people who feel that CNN has crossed a line here. Obviously, they have a lot of contributors who are clearly associated with particular politicians. They've got David Axelrod, who was the campaign manager, of course, for Barack Obama. They have uh, Paul Begala, who's done that same function for the Clintons, and very many people who have been associated with a political figure. But they are not on the payroll of that person at this time. Mm -hmm. So for Corey Lewandowski, who is... I think one could argue still very much singing exactly the same tune he yes. did when he was campaign yes. manager for Donald Trump to be on these shows to be a contributor that seems to be a new animal. Yeah. And you know I I also think this question about surrogates comes up about Trump surrogates because he has had some bad ones. You can think back over the last month or two. There was the one surrogate that said that Hillary should be shot by a firing squad. There was the other surrogate who uh tweeted a picture of Hillary Clinton in blackface. There was a surrogate this week who said that if we don't check immigration soon, there'll be taco trucks on every street corner. Um, It got so bad with these surrogates. In early August, the Trump campaign sent out an email to all of their official surrogates saying, hey, guys, get it in line. (laughs) Stick to our talking points. Why does Trump seem to have particularly off message surrogates this cycle? But how perfect is it that the candidate that can't stay on message has surrogates that can't, <laughs> can't stay, on, stay message. on message? In that, in that yeah, regard, they might yeah. be the exact right surrogates. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I, is different about Trump, because his candidacy is so different, is a lot of these surrogates are also not people that I think are as practiced and polished yeah. in the art of surrogacy. Um, because he is he does not have a lot of the traditional Republican Party surrogates going on They're not doing for, it for him. him. And, and let's not forget that there have been some clumsy surrogates on the other side oh, as well. Yeah. I mean, if you're Hillary Clinton, you have the world's most fabulous and also troublesome surrogate in your husband, who's a former <laughs> yeah. president, and who is all kinds of trouble. He, like, gets in fights with protesters. And, and, and of course, most famously, probably added a couple of months worth of legs to the entire email controversy by getting on an airplane with Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, giving every appearance to even unsuspicious people that there was some sort of collusion about what was going to happen with the prosecution of potential crimes related to those emails. So to get it straight for me in my head, representatives most likely paid by the campaign Staff. Uh, staff. Surrogates, high-level people. Um, that Allies. Allies that are getting talking points from the campaign. And generally unpaid. And generally unpaid. Lewandowski, somewhere in between. Somewhere out there yeah. in between, not only in that world, but also in our world, the yes. journalistic world yeah. of who's speaking yeah. for whom. Okay. Question four is from Dervla, a PhD student at the University of Pittsburgh. Cool. She says the question came to her after hearing all the chatter about this week's primary battles, John McCain, Marco Rubio. She writes, I was wondering what happens if a senator loses his or her seat? Do they leave Capitol Hill in shame or do they have backup jobs lined up? Thanks. Well, they make more money, right? I have covered a lot of losing congressional campaigns, and I am here to tell you that they do just fine after they <laughs> leave Capitol Hill. Uh, I was looking at some numbers about this, and I think it, right now there's between four and 500 former members of Congress who work as lobbyists oh or in some other form of consultancy Ugh. petitioning the federal government. I remember when the first uh, former governor or senator got a job as a million dollar a year head of a trade association. 
And there are many, many countless, in fact, trade associations and professional associations in Washington, D.C., and they seem almost literally to have a competition to see which can pay their head, their CEO, their chairman the most money. Are they worth that much? That's a debatable. <laughs> it, it, they do have they do have the privilege of being able to go on the floor, and that means oh, really? that they get yes. Former members, former of, members, not they, if they are registered lobbyists. But that's why they become heads of trade associations. <laughs> exactly, because oh. then they don't have to register as lobbyists. But you know, if the guy who represents a certain kind of insurance company should happen to put the arm on me, uh, I, I'm not being lobbied. You understand? Because he's not a registered lobbyist. He's just sharing with me some of his concerns. It's also know? such a pervasive practice that there are laws in place. So when if you leave Congress, whether you are, are defeated or retire and become a registered lobbyist, they have what's called a cooling off period, hmm. which means for one year after you leave office and register as a lobbyist, you are not allowed to contact any of your former colleagues. You're not supposed to call them. You're not supposed How to go to the office. How can they monitor that? That's a, that is a question that is often raised. Well, you can see these people sitting all over the Capitol just cooling off for months <laughs> at a time. <laughs> okay. Question five, sticking with the theme. Here's another one sent by Courtney of South Carolina. She writes, quote, my husband and I were inquiring about what President Obama will do after he leaves office. What will do to make a living? Because he's fairly young. I think he keeps doing the My Brother's Keeper thing. And Which is what? This is his uh, outreach program to young black and brown youth. Um, he has convinced several corporations to invest heavily in this program. I could see him keeping that up uh, after he's done. I also think he's going to go on the speaking circuit. He yeah. has to. He's going to make that money, right? I mean, there's three things we know for sure he will do. One, he has to build his presidential library. And those, yes. those are private funds that are raised. Uh, yeah. So the president and the first lady will raise a ton of money for that. Um, we know he will give speeches. And yeah. we know he will make a lot of money oh, yeah. for that. And we know, I mean, we don't know, but we know that both he and Michelle Obama are all but certain to write books. Do not cry for them, Southside Chicago, because <laughs> they will do just fine. They're going to get paid. All yeah. those all those books are going to do just fine. And as the president himself said at the last White House Correspondents' Dinner, he looks forward to giving speeches and making himself some major Benjamins. <laughs> now, what about Michelle? Like, she used to be a high-powered hospital yeah. administrator. She has a law degree. Yeah. She is. Uh, she was the breadwinner in for the Obama time. family for a long time as yeah. he was pursuing uh, office and other, and other things. Um, we don't know what she's going to do. We know things that she's interested in. Yes. One of the things that she has focused on a lot this year is is college initiatives and getting kids to go to college. Mm -hmm. She was at Howard University this week with Seth Meyers the, and the actor Nick Cannon doing an event there to promote college initiatives. I think this mix of things that you're both describing is I think what's worked better for the people who were young enough. Yes. Who were young enough, uh, and certainly this is an exceptionally young former president, yes. uh, to have another 20 years of working life. Yeah. All right, question six. Moving on here, something about the first presidential debate, which is on September 26th at Hofstra University in New York. And we know that it's going to be moderated by NBC's Lester Holt. Here's the question. Hey, guys. My name is Terrence Harris. I'm from Tampa, Florida, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. We're a big fan of you. Thank Thanks, you for listening. Uh, my question to you is, if you had the ability to ask the first question to either candidate in the first debate coming up, uh, what would those questions be? You know, this is my journalism anxiety dream <laughs> that I like find out that I have like a couple hours to moderate a debate. That would and, never happen. And I'm like not ready for it. And I don't have any I haven't done any prep. And it's like this like it's like See, when you I've, the other one is like I'm still in college and I realize I don't have the credits to graduate. And it's like graduation day. <laughs> oh, no. My my like 
Phantom Nightmare thing is that I just have one story where I get every fact wrong. <laughs> like, 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 like 17 corrections in one story. But to Terrence's question, this is tough. I think this is the toughest question one. in the mailbag. Go ahead. You go. You start. I would say one of you is going to win. Everyone's still going to be angry. What do you do? What is your plan to begin to soothe some of those emotions and bring the country together? Mm-hmm. And then what do you plan to do in that same regard if you lose? Mm, mm. Yeah. Good yeah. follow. Yeah. Uh, I don't know exactly how I'd phrase the question, but I think you always kind of want to start with their weakest points. Okay. Um, and I think that for Clinton... You know, the never ending controversy over her emails, the continuing of questions raised between the relationship between her time at state and the Clinton Foundation and the incredibly high levels of mistrust that voters have in her that we've seen in polls is I think it would be something like, what are you going to do to improve the way people view you? What steps towards transparency or what will you do differently in the White House so people so voters feel they can trust you? And for Trump? For Trump, I think one of the things that is always I have found very interesting about him from a policy perspective is that he wants to keep entitlements like Social Security and Medicare the way they are. He wants to increase spending on things like the military. And he wants to build a lot of things. He wants to improve infrastructure. He wants to build that wall, even though I know he says Mexico will pay for it. But there's still a lot of money that he wants to spend. How do you pay for all these things you want to do? I, I think the other question that, that I'd be t- tempted to ask Donald Trump would be how he planned to approach the people who have been supporting him and who see him as a populist figure, uh, champion of the little guy, mm-hmm. and explain the degree to which his tax plans within his economic plan are so overwhelmingly favorable to persons such as himself, people with very mm-hmm. high levels of income, how he would explain that to those followers. Gotcha. One more question, y'all. We can do it. All right. Be strong. Okay, last question of the day is also recorded. This is Ricky from Virginia, and I had a question regarding the current political climate. Hey, Ricky. Hey, Rick. Hey, NPR people, we all want to know, will all this negativity continue to grow? Was this just one time? Yes. Was this just a fluke? Please say some sentences that this won't continue. Oh, my. Yes. All right. He's in vocalness, y'all. New rule, all recorded questions must be done in song. Yes, and he like he's in vocalness. And they must all have that same tune. Yes. So that last ending that he had was, uh, please say, Sam Sanders, that this won't continue. Got to say, I don't know if I can guarantee that, buddy. Um, I think that the negativity that we're seeing in this election lingers. I, I think it has a long tail. The seeds of 2016 certainly do not lend itself to believe <laughs> that the flowers of 2017 are going to be beautiful yes. and gracious yes. and kind. Yes, I like um, that. But drawing it back to the debate question is that the next president has a tremendous burden on yeah. their shoulders yeah. to try and reconcile the the two Americas divide we've seen in this election and to move the country forward. And the president has still has a tremendous ability to set the tone. The president has the ability to set the tone for the government, mm-hmm. perhaps for the federal government and mm-hmm. by extension to the other governments. The president used to be able to set the tone in the media, if you go back to radio and early television days and even more recent television days. But now we are in a different environment. And there is an excellent chance that at the other side of this election, the negativity and perhaps just the furor, the tumult, if you will, of this election will continue, that it will not end on November 8th. Even if we have a clear winner, it is possible that in the media broadly defined, we will continue to hear 
the candidate who has not been successful uh, hold forth. Now, all right, I'm not going to get I'm not going to be cute about this. I think there's a much greater chance of that happening if Donald Trump should be unsuccessful, if Hillary Clinton is elected, especially if there's a close electoral college and there's a split between that and the popular vote, which is a prospect that could happen. I think we need a royal baby. Hmm. If we had a monarchy and there was some major unifying event like a royal baby for us to get excited about and pretend to make names for and then see it look all cute and get christened and stuff. But we had the Olympics, which that was, was two we weeks. had a moment. That, a, a royal baby gives you like a year of content. <laughs> There's always the argument for the monarchy being that you get a head of state. Yeah. You, get, you get human beings that are not supposedly really political animals. They're just there to represent the whole country yeah. and for us all to feel good about. But then you get the royals you get. You know, you don't get the royals you would like to have. You get the royals you get. We have I mean, like, okay, what is American royalty right now? If we had to say Beyonce. Yeah. Good call. And our royal baby is Blue Ivy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On that note, that's it for today. As always, you can catch more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org. We'll be back in your feed later this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.